Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you turn them to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six, for a message entitled, Your Kingdom Come, Embracing God's Will on Earth. Before we get started, I want to just talk about uh, the vote that you guys uh, presented last week. It was, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, it's for you, for you. Um, very humbling. I'm honored to be have the opportunity to serve it as your pastor at this stage in in my ministry, uh, and uh, it's really it really is a bit overwhelming, but um, it, it is truly an honor. I believe, and I don't mean this to sound you know overly pious or anything, but I believe the vote says more about you than it does about me. Okay, I believe I believe it says something about the unanimity of this church, which. Beloved, I promise you, if we will maintain in the things that matter going forward, being of one mind, God will do miraculous works at Richland Baptist Church. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Read this out loud with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, again, we come with uh, to familiar words. We've uttered these words so many times. We pray as always, Father, and it's the only way we're going to be moved and changed and touched by your word is if your Holy Spirit works in and through the words that are spoken and in our hearts and our minds to help us to embrace them and empower us to obey them. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. R.C. Sproul wrote, It is inescapable that prayer is an expected activity for the people of God. Furthermore, our Lord Himself is the supreme model for us in all things, and He clearly made prayer a huge priority in His life. We can do no less. We must engage in it simply because God commands us to do it. Our prayer life, like nothing else, beloved, speaks to the depth of our walk with Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at, initially at the importance of prayer in general, and we're going to do a little review this morning. We were reminded that it's through prayer that we draw near to the Father, that we receive life and, and sustenance, and, and so we, we must know how to pray as we ought. Among other things, we ask whether or not prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And if it is, is it true that prayer is the ultimate test of where we're at with Jesus, of our spiritual condition? We talked about recapturing the delight, the joy, the passion of, of prayer, about recovering the sense that through prayer we have the privilege of coming before the throne of Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth. We saw that the Lord's Prayer might be more accurately labeled as the model prayer or the pattern prayer because it teaches us how to pray. The prayer Jesus gives us it certainly is one that we can recite and we have recited many times before as we did this a little bit earlier, but it's not meant to only be recited, but to serve as a framework of sorts for all of our prayers. Jesus did not say, pray then these words. He said, pray then like this. Pray then in this 
manner. So we're to consider this prayer that Christ offers us as a model for prayer. We also looked at the importance of beginning our prayers with praise. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The privilege of calling upon the God of the universe as Father. Practically speaking along those lines, I suggested that when we pray our Father, we might ask Him to implant within our hearts a comforting trust of His fatherly love for us, that we might begin to wrap our minds around the sweetness of that, to call God Father. might remind ourselves that He's our Redeemer, our Protector, our Defender, our Mighty Fortress, and so much more. We might contemplate what it means to call the Creator of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, Abba, Daddy. We talked about His attributes and His promises and His provision as the Father and, and all the many reasons we have for praising Him, not just as our personal Father, my Father in heaven, but as our Father, which makes us what church? What? Family. Family. And then we talked about what it means to pray, hallowed be your name, and we, about how we come to our times of prayer acknowledging His glory and His majesty before we petition. Petition. We're going to look at the first of those today and intercede for ourselves and for others. How we pray, hallowed be your name. When we do that, we might ask him to, for one, keep us from dishonoring his name, to empower us to be good and, and to be holy, that his name would be spread around the world, that his people would honor him with the Christ-likeness and the holiness of their lives, that we might have a, a heart of grateful joy toward him, that we might have a heart captivated by God. I know we tend to think of prayer too often that it's about asking God for things or perhaps thanking Him for what He's already given us, but we need to understand, and I believe you do, that prayer is first and foremost about the glory of God. Yes, yeah, yes, there's absolutely a time for us to petition Him for our needs, for our spiritual needs, for our physical needs, as well as protection from temptation and from the evil that surrounds us. But before that, we must see the priority of hallowed be your name. Brother, remembering who He is and who we are is the key to the attitude that we need to bring when we come before Him in prayer. Sproul wrote, We have access to His very throne, but sometimes we come into His presence far too casually with a kind of familiarity that reveals we have forgotten who He is and who we are. We have forgotten that we are peasants in the presence of the king, and not just a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is absolutely sovereign. We also examined what it means when he says, Hallowed be your name. Well, we learned that God has revealed himself through, through many names, and each of those names say something about who he is and, and what he promises us, like Jehovah Yira, God our provider. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Shema, the Lord who will never leave us or forsake us, and, and so many others. And when he gave us these various names, part of what he's doing is revealing himself, something of his character and his nature and his being, his attributes to us. So when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, in a sense, we're praying for all of that. So then to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, means a, a burning desire that the whole world may come to bow before God in adoration and reverence and praise and worship and honor and thanksgiving. So as we move on to verse 10 today, let me ask you this. 
what is it that you are passionate about? I mean, what really matters to you? Another way of asking that is, what are your priorities in life? All of us have them. As, as most of you know, at least some of you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the University of Alabama, particularly their football team. I did not attend university there, I, but you've got to understand that, that football is just different in the South, okay? <laughs> particularly in Alabama. You know, when you're born, your parents get to look at the birth certificate, and there's, there's a couple of boxes, male, female, or Alabama, or Auburn. If you could see our family room, you wouldn't have any doubts about how big a fan I am. There's a lot of Alabama artwork on the walls. You might look at all those pictures and that memorabilia, and you think, he's not a fan, he's a fanatic. And you'd really think that if you could watch me watch a game. I do have to remind myself sometimes that it's just that, that game. Some of us know well what we're passionate about, what are our priorities, even if we don't admit it. It might be football or baseball or, or hunting or fishing or golf or, or some other hobby. But let me ask you again, what about you? What are your priorities? What is it that you are passionate about? It was Dr. Billy Graham who once said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook. Somebody said, oh, me. And I will tell you where their heart is. And that probably is a, a pretty good barometer for what really matters to most of us. It's hard to dispute the things we give our time to, our money to, our energy to, are the things that really, really matter to us, the things that we're really passionate about. So what if we were to take a look at our priorities and evaluate them honestly? What would we find out? If an unbiased, objective observer took a good look at those things in which we invest ourselves, what would they find? What would they discover? Would they come away thinking, you know, his priorities are all wrong, her priorities are all wrong? Would we be surprised by the results? Might those results reveal that some of the things we thought were pretty high up on the list are in fact not as high up as we thought they were? Jesus gets right to the point about what should be our top priority when he instructs us to pray to our Father in heaven in this manner. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He clearly wants us to see that the kingdom, after we've offered praise to our Father, the priority of our petitions, the petitions begin here, the priority of our petitions in prayer is the kingdom and the will of God. We know that the message of Jesus centered around the kingdom of God. In Matthew 5, verse 23... We read, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And in, back up before that, in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even post-resurrection, we find our Savior preaching to His disciples about the kingdom. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read, To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. In fact, there are, more, there are more than 40 references in the Gospels to the kingdom from Jesus. Can there be any mistaking that a priority was Jesus, the priority perhaps, was the kingdom 
of God. And it follows then quite naturally that that should be a priority for you and I. So how is the kingdom defined? Well, there have been many brilliant men, men far more brilliant than your pastor, godly theologians who have offered us uh, uh, so many de- de- definitions of the kingdom of God. You may have your favorite. One of my favorites, the very best I believe, is that of the evangelical Anglican theologian Graham Goldsworthy. And here it is. And this is going to be a framework for how we look at, at this today. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And then if we look at Scripture and we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see the earliest manifestation of this, this thing called God's kingdom through Adam and Eve, His people who lived under His rule and blessing in His place, the garden, right? Then came the fall and the shattering of the harmony that Adam and Eve had, had been enjoying leading to their exile from the garden and the, and the loss of God's blessing and rebellion and, and His ruling due to their rebellion. And listen, I hope we all understand that, that without redemption, rebellion is the prevailing state for all of us. You and I were once alienated from God, enemies of God, Paul tells us. We were once dwelling in what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness. Yet thankfully God did not abandon us there. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And then after the fall, as His redemptive plan unfolds, our Father continued to establish His kingdom on earth. He chose and called Abraham, right? And His descendants, God's people, to be a light to the nations. God promised them the land of Canaan, God's place where He would dwell with them, in the tabernacle at first, and then the temple. God provided with them, God provided His people with the law, with a sacrificial System whereby they could facilitate a righteous relationship with Him, develop fellowship with Him, representing His rule and His blessing. Of course, we know what Israel did. They failed to meet those demands, those intentions of God. Similar to Adam, they rebelled against God, and even their kings rebelled, most of them anyway. These men who were chosen, who were supposed to lead the nation toward righteous living, we read in Scripture over and over again of their disobedience and their wickedness, how they led the people to to worship idols made of stone rather than the living God who had done so much for them. How could they forget? And so there followed the time of exile in Babylon. And like Adam and Eve who were evicted from the garden because of their disobedience, God's people, Israel, were exiled from the promised land to Babylon. But, But God, even in the face of, even in the midst of His judgment, raised up prophets, raised up prophets from among the people who proclaimed His message of redemption, the message that a day was coming when He would establish His kingdom here on earth. One of those prophets, you know him well, is Jeremiah. He spoke of a new covenant where the law would no longer be inscribed on tablets of stone, but written where? On the hearts of the people, that's right. Bringing with it a possibility of a new depth, a new level of intimacy to their relationship with God, one that would supernaturally empower their ability to obey God's commands. We have the Davidic covenant that comes along in 2 Samuel, verse 
7, chapter 7, verse 8 through 17, vividly portraying the hope for God's kingdom to come on earth, pointing beyond Solomon to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant. Your throne shall be established forever, God tells David. And then by the time we reach Acts 2, Jesus sits exalted on that throne. He's at the right hand of God, ruler over all the universe, His kingdom unrivaled, His reign to endure forever. And again, we see before that, Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see that James and John and Peter catch a glimpse of that glorious kingdom at the transfiguration. And we see that Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross exemplified the actions of a king coming to rescue his people. And then after the resurrection, he declares that he'd been given all authority in heaven and on earth And we see that the foundation for the Great Commission itself is rooted in Christ's proclamation as the King of all creation. Now, in our day, how does it apply to us? As believers in Christ, we, God's people, gather in local churches, God's place. We submit ourselves to the law of Christ as revealed in His Word, and we enjoy a fellowship with Him under the new covenant representing God's rule and blessing over our lives. And yet there is so, so much more, beloved. For you see, when we pray your kingdom come, we pray in anticipation of a day when His kingdom will be fully culminated. Surely now, For a season, we remained engaged in this great struggle, a struggle, I might add, that is more significant against far more dangerous foes than we imagine. But we will continue on. We will suit up, not with man's armor, but with the armor of God. Paul writes, standing against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Always, always, always remembering that the victory, the victory has already been won as we carry out the commission to make disciples of the king and citizens of the kingdom. Undoubtedly, we're going to face great trials. We already have. We're going to face great suffering along the way. Even though we now find ourselves in God's kingdom, we await eagerly the kingdom's coming in all its fullness. We await the fulfillment of the great commission and the arrival of the king, bringing the destruction of all wickedness. We long for a day when we will no longer do battle, but a day when we will rest in the triumphant victory that has already been won for us by Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. A day that's depicted in Revelation eleven fifteen, where we read... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, after instructing the disciples and us to pray for the people of God's kingdom, Jesus tells them to pray, Your will be done. A church family, it's imperative that from time to time we do a little bit deeper dive on Sunday morning, even to get into a little bit of church doctrine, a little biblical doctrine as it applies and is helpful to us understanding the text that we're looking at that morning. This is one of those times. I'm going to try not to get too far 
off in the weeds, but get far enough off to challenge you and give you a better understanding or remind you of an understanding that you already have. I mean, there's so much that can be said about what we're talking about here. Whole books have been written on this one verse, on this one half of this one verse. So much more to say than we have time for. But we are required here, I believe, to dig a little deeper. So the first thing we need to understand, and, and for centuries theologians have recognized this, we need to understand there are two major ways Scripture reveals that the will of God can be used. Scripture speaks of God's sovereign will. That's when Scripture, when scripture speaks of God's sovereign will. It's referring to His absolute sovereign reign over all things. However, the only reason that anything exists is because God has willed it to exist. From the movement of the smallest particles of the atom to the actions of nations to the traversing of, of, of galaxies across the universe, every event in the entire cosmos is controlled on the direction of God's sovereign Will. We see that affirmed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul writes, speaking of God's sovereign will. Speaking of God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What we can know then is that everything that God has sovereignly willed shall without fail come to pass. And we don't have to search very deeply in Scripture to see this. In fact, we can start at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, where we see God sovereignly will the world into existence merely by speaking it into existence. And then we can look at the very next book, Exodus, where we find the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, and we see the sovereign will of God over all the kingdoms of the earth, even to the point of hardening Pharaoh's heart for the purpose that he might be glorified as he delivered his people. We see in the writings of the prophets, God proclaiming His preeminence over all the idols of the nations, over their false gods of stone, declaring His absolute and sovereign rule over all of creation. God speaks to this declaration. It's recorded by the prophet Isaiah when He declares, I am God, and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The psalmist states it well when he writes, Our God is in the heaven. He does all that He pleases. So there in a nutshell is the sovereign will of God. But then second, we see from Scripture that the phrase, the will of God, is used to speak of God's commands. So theologians refer to this use of the will of God as the revealed will of God. We're talking here, among other things, about what God expects of those He has created. That includes us. One example of God's revealed will is His issuance of the Ten Commandments. Also, the call to repentance, the call to place one's faith in the gospel, is an example of God's revealed will. In Acts chapter 17, we read the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Still another example is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where we read, For this is the will of God. Got too far ahead of you. Sorry about that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So it's clear here that Paul is speaking 
about what God expects from His people. And we know that His people have failed throughout time to meet God's expectations, as opposed to His sovereign will over all things, which always has been, is now, and always will be completely fulfilled without fail. Back to Genesis again. We see God's revealed will for Adam and Eve very clearly. It was to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the earth and its creatures and to not do what, church family? Eat of the fruit of a certain tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis. Of course, we know what they did. They, re- they rebelled. They were tempted by the serpent. They rebelled against God's revealed will. Without excuse, they were without excuse. Adam tried to blame Eve, really tried to blame God, right? The woman you gave to me, she gave it to me. Eve tried to blame the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. But they had no excuse for their rebellion, no excuse for their sin. And the consequences they suffered fell not only upon them, but upon all of humanity, upon you and upon me as we sit here this morning. And just like Adam and Eve, you and I cannot claim that our sin fulfills God's sovereign will. For God the Son, Jesus Christ, suffered and died in accordance with the will of God, but those who were party to it were yet held responsible for His death. For the Son of Man goes as is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So in simplest terms, the the big difference, the biggest difference between the revealed will of God and the sovereign will of God for us in this present age is that while we ought to obey, we are expected as the children of God to obey, we have the ability to disobey. And when we're talking about something being in God's sovereign will, we're talking about something that is going to happen it's going to happen so maybe we have a a bit of a better understanding maybe you've been reminded of something you already knew about the kingdom and the will of God this morning and maybe I've just muddied the waters I don't know but I hope that you have a cleared understanding And, and yet we're still left with the question going back to the text now what is Jesus teaching us about praying your will be done Is he talking about you and I praying for the sovereign will of God? Or is he talking about the revealed will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus is clearly talking here about the revealed will of God. Because God's sovereign will is already done in heaven as it is on earth. The psalmist wrote, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Jesus is asking His Father to mold the hearts of His people so that we have a heart that is bent toward obedience to His Father, a heart that's bent on glorifying our Father here on earth, just as the angels obey and glorify God in heaven. So we see that in this petition, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us what it looks like for God's kingdom to come here on earth. When the lost who are dead in their sins and trespasses, as we once were, are by the grace of God made alive in Christ Jesus, the kingdom of God takes hold of them, and then they begin to want to see the will of God done on earth, just as the angels in heaven. They're not made perfect, 
but they are made new, new creatures with a new orientation, with new desires as we once were. And when we seek then His kingdom, if we truly love God, but we are not yet what we will be, and in this age of the kingdom yet to be consummated, we can only know, we can only see as in a glass dimly, Paul says. But the day is coming. We don't know what we will, she, what we will be, but we, we know that when He comes, we will be like Him. That day's coming. Oh, on that sure coming day, the dawn of a new age, the age of the consummated kingdom, we will experience the fullness of what the kingdom is. So in a sense, beloved, we are already there. We've entered into the kingdom by the exchanged life that we have in Christ as His disciples, and that means we have a responsibility. We're as ambassadors to make the kingdom known to everyone we come into contact with. Hear me plainly. Our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, fellow students, family members. It is our responsibility as ambassadors of God to make clear to those folks that our number one priority is the rule of kingdom, the kingdom over our lives here and now. To that end, we pray. We pray that the kingdom of God would come and His will would be done in every area and arena of humanity. The, the kingdom of God the Father reveals itself in the power, in the righteousness, in the peace, in the joy that we know as a result of God living, the Lord Jesus living in and through us. It's as Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And as part of that ongoing process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit works among us and through us to convict us, to mold us, to grow us, often through the trials and adversities we have in life, and to use us in our role as ambassadors to be change agents for others so that they might come to experience the kingdom of God. And we can always, always know that the kingdom of God is in our midst because He has promised us. He has promised to be with us, to never leave us, or forsake us. Jesus Himself is in our midst. So we've been reminded today that when we pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, we are placing ourselves willingly under the lordship of the King. We're saying that there's nothing more important to us than His will. We're saying, God, I no longer want to let my selfish desires be the driving force of my life. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. I want you to rule, to dominate, to lead me into your purposes for my life. So what are we asking? Beloved, if we have, gl if we have glossed over this petition, perhaps because we're so familiar with it, we must no longer do so. We must not because we ourselves cannot cause the kingdom to come. It is only by the sovereign grace of God that darkness can be turned to light, that redemption can come out of rebellion. Without Christ, human beings are naturally hostile to God. But those who are yet to be saved, and saints, we remember what we were like, right? Those people do not want, they do not appreciate their sense of identity, their commitment to self being challenged by anything. As the, message of the messengers of the gospel, we are up against that with individuals we try to share with. And then collectively, the way our culture is so 
rapidly deteriorating. The way anything to do with Christianity and the Bible, any message, any song, any movie, any television show, the way any person of prominence who publicly expresses biblical faith is so vehemently and violently opposed, it may be sooner than we think that we will find ourselves in a nation where praying for the kingdom of God to come will be considered harmful counter to the interest of the culture as increasingly evil is called good and good is called evil. For some time now, anyone in the limelight who confesses Christ as their king and speaks of a coming time when His kingdom will come in all its power is in direct opposition to the culture. And yet, beloved, we must not shrink back. We must claim the promise of God that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We must yearn and pray for the return of our Savior to make all things right. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Indeed, for those of us who call Christ Lord and Savior, this petition is beautiful, especially when we see it in all of its depth, but it is increasingly, increasingly radical to say out loud in our culture and there may be a day soon coming when it will be seen irony of ironies as subversive to the best interest of our nations as dangerous to our democracy and yet as citizens of another kingdom called and given assignment by the God of creation we must pray this petition we must pray that God will come and bring history as we know it to an end we must pray that God will be honored, Christ will be honored as King in every human heart, that faith will spread to all nations, to every corner of this globe. We, we must pray to see Satan bound, evil vanquished once and for all, and for death to be no more. We must pray for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We must pray for a day when we will see a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new creation. Beloved, this is not tame, cautious praying. This is risky, radical praying. Beloved, let us no longer take this petition lightly. Let, let us cling to the great and glorious hope found in these words. For there is a day coming when Jesus will return in glory. A day when we will see the glory of the kingdom in all of its fullness. A glimpse of which has been revealed to us in Scripture. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Maranatha! Come, Lord Jesus! To that end, we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just relish the blessings we have as being a part of your kingdom, as your blood-bought children, as members of the body of faith known as Richland Baptist Church, as member of the greater body of faith. It is all believers who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We relish that. We yearn, Father. We long for, but we confess, Lord, that we do not yearn enough. We do not long enough for the return of your Son, Jesus. There are a myriad of reasons, Father, including family members and friends we know do not know your Son, Jesus Christ, and we fear, we know, as your Word teaches, that they would be in hell for all eternity if you were to come back today. Father, help us to understand the big picture of your redemption. To be faithful, yes, every single day to proclaim the good news of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, with everybody we can. But to keep our fixed eyes fixed on that eastern horizon for the day when your Son will return and take us home to be with you for all eternity. May that hope fuel us. May it empower us to do your will here on earth before you yet come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.